welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Since we began this podcast series three and a half years ago, we've met some amazing people doing incredible work, all making a difference in the opioid epidemic. And today's guest is no exception. What sets him apart is his special sense of urgency by which he goes about the business of saving lives and the magnitude of his work. Over the last week, I witnessed that firsthand. As he developed a name of a new initiative, submitted the copyright, he developed the logo, and appointed a national project leader, all within 24 hours of learning about a student-led in-school prevention program. You'll hear more on that today as we talk with David Siegel, the founder and CEO of Westgate Resorts, the largest timeshare business in the world. In 2012, his rags-to-riches story was profiled in The Queen of Versailles, a documentary about his family and their construction of a 90,000-square-foot palace in Orlando, and then their subsequent struggles to keep their head above water in the wake of the real estate market crash in 2008. But nothing prepared them for the shock of losing their oldest child to an overdose in 2015. Like so many, that day changed their lives forever. As we begin, David shares the story of how he and his family came to be featured in a reality series. Let me go back to uh, the Queen of Versailles. Uh, My my wife, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, she's a shopaholic. And um, she likes designer clothes. And she, and she uh, gets invited to the grand opening of the Versace store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And they give her a first-class ticket, and, and, they, and they have a limo for her, and they put her in a fancy hotel. She goes to their grand opening. And so obviously she was a pretty good customer here in Orlando to get invited. And when she's at the grand opening, she meets a woman who I'd rather not use her name because I don't even like to give her credit. But she meets uh, a woman who was there to photograph the opening. And she started talking to her about this house we're building in Orlando called Versailles. It's a French-style house. It's going to be the largest home in America when it's finished. 90,000 square feet. I know it sounds crazy, but but people said, why am I doing it? My answer was because I could. And I've been very successful in business. I've built a small empire, 15,000 employees, 30 resorts in 11 states around the country. and. We're the largest privately owned timeshare company uh, in the world, and uh, and we're one of the big 
three. Marriott, Wyndham, and Westgate are the big three timeshare companies. And now Hilton's gotten big, so maybe we're one of the big four now. But uh, in any event, uh, mm-hmm. a woman said, I'd love to come and photograph your house. And, and of course, my wife asked me, and I was all in favor, because we were going to have somebody photograph the construction anyway, so we would have like a, you know, a reference book when the house was finished. So she comes out, and she starts with the house, and then the recession hit. And we had to stop construction on the house because I'm I'm laying off half of my employees and I can't very well be building the house and while well, money was tight laying them off. And so we had to being a private company, I was able to turn on a dime and uh, uh downsize my company to survive the recession. But the banks all froze. And our business was based on easy access to borrowed money. And when the when the access was no longer there, I had to downsize in order uh, to uh, uh, keep the company going. And uh, uh, we we closed some call centers. We we closed some sales rooms. We just basically uh, downsized. Well, when they came out and filmed the, uh, the the show, which was Queen of Versailles, uh, they they showed the closed up parts of the company, but they didn't show that next door. We were still doing sales. We were still doing making money. We were surviving. They showed. They made it look like we were going under. At the same time, when I when I shut down the construction of the house. Like I said, they then turned to the how the recession was affecting the company, and then they turned to the family itself. And my daughter at the time uh, was about 12, 13 years old. And they showed her, and she was in kind of that awkward stage, and she was a little pudgy, and, and they showed her in a very, very bad light. And when the film came out, and then they showed the company go, basically made it look like the company was going under when, in fact, it was still profitable, just smaller than it was before. But anyway, they started coming to my house and they started filming how the family reacted during this bad situation and they embarrassed my children. And, and it got to the point where where my wife would invite them to come in and I would kick them out and they would show up on, on birthdays. They would show up on holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, unexpected. I would, and they, they filmed me and they, and they made it look like I was stressing out over the recession, but really I was stressing out over them showing up when I didn't want them to be there. So when I, they would want to interview me, I'd think, go to hell. I'd walk away and they would film that and make it look like, like I was stressed over, over business. And so finally the film came out, uh, and about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, 
I think it was 2012 is what I read online, yeah. And it embarrassed the Victoria. And the kids and the kids at school started, you know, between her looks. Uh, and she's a beautiful girl, but she went through that awkward time. And also the fact that her family had money and the kids would, that almost embarrassed her that we had money. And uh, so that really affected her. And unknown to me, she started experimenting with marijuana when she was like 14, 15. And then uh, uh, and I've raised 14 children in my life. Uh, I wore out three wives, but uh, 11 biological and three were stepchildren. And I've been through the teenage periods, and they and the kids, uh, you know, the you know the, with the hormones and all, the kids act crazy. So, so Victoria acted similar to them, but one day she would come over and put her arms around me and say, "I love you, Daddy." And next day she'd say, "I hate you." And so finally, she was starting to miss school, and 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 uh, acting strange. And so finally I had my wife send her to a psychiatrist and she came home and I said, what happened? And she said, he put me on Xanax. And then a few months later, she was uh, not acting any better. So we sent her back and I, I expected, you know, that he should be, he would counsel her and, and uh, you know, she came home and I said, what happened? She said he doubled my dosage. And so, again, not knowing what Xanax was, I didn't think anything of it. I figured the doctor knows what he's doing. And that started the spiral where she ended up using just about every drug there was. Unknown to me, again, I had no idea what's I until the day she died. I had no idea that she was using drugs a little over a month before her death. She said, I'm, I, I'm hooked on Xanax and I'm, I'm, I'm going into rehab. And I said, Oh, that's nice. And so six days later, she went into rehab and six days later, she's out, she's out. And again, I had no idea that, that you cannot, uh, beat an addiction in less than 90 days. Uh, and that's one of the big problems we have today. Families want to help their children. They put them in into a, um, a rehab, and the insurance company only pays for 30 days. It's usually about $1,000 a day. And uh, and then they, when the money runs out, they kick them out. Well, no one is cured of an of a addiction in less than 90 days, sometimes takes as much as a year. So they kick them out. All, all that happened was they were detoxed and they were counseled and they come out and they fall off the wagon and they go back to the same dosage that they were taking when they went in, except their body has been detoxed. It can no longer tolerate the dosage. And more people, uh, after 30 days of rehab, uh, uh, overdose and die than any other time because because uh, they're not cured and they can't tolerate the new dosage. But in any event, 
she goes in this rehab and they mix the boys and girls together and she meets a guy who was in there for court order treatment and uh and he's a heroin addict and a xanax addict and uh, you name it and she falls in love for the first time in her life and so a month later uh we were we we had all planned to go to a a family wedding in Utah and we wanted her to go with us and she said oh no dad uh it's our 30 day anniversary i i don't want to leave and had i known that she was uh addicted to drugs i would have never left her also when she was in in rehab they had a psychiatrist you know uh, uh, talk to her and, uh, and they found, uh, and she told them that she also had suicidal tendencies and because of the HIPAA law and she was over, she was 18, because HIPAA law, they never mentioned me. Had I known that she had suicidal tendencies when, when we were leaving town, I would have, I would have never left number one, but if I did leave, I'd have left somebody to watch her twenty four seven, but I but they didn't tell me because of HIPAA law. So it was the perfect storm. Uh, so they have their thirty day and so called anniversary, and she gets a horrible uh, text from his ex girlfriend, and uh, um, I don't know whether she killed herself or accidentally overdosed because she was feeling a lot of pain, but, but, uh, uh, when the first responders came to my home, uh, they did not carry Narcan and she died on the way to the hospital. Had they carried Narcan, she'd still be alive today. In her introduction to the reality show, The Princess of Versailles, Jackie Siegel recaps their life and how everything changed when they got that call no parent wants to receive. In 2015. My name is Jackie Siegel. I live in Orlando, Florida, and I'm married to David Siegel, the billionaire timeshare mogul who owns Westgate Resorts, which now has 28 locations all across the United States. In 2004, my husband and I began building the largest home in America, a 90,000 square foot palace nicknamed Versailles, and I have come to be known as the Queen of Versailles a title I can't help but love. During the recession that began in 2008, we were forced to make concessions just like the rest of America. We decided to stop construction on Versailles. But now the recession is over and we got Versailles back on track. And in 2015, business was booming. So my husband went shopping. He bought the Cocoa Beach Pier, the Las Vegas Hilton, which he turned into a Westgate resort, and he even bought a football team, the Orlando Predators. We were a big, happy family that had everything life on earth could offer. And 2015 should have been the best year of our lives, but it took just one phone call for it to become the worst. The family at the center of the unforgettable documentary, The Queen of Versailles, has suffered a tragic loss. 
they've lost their daughter, 18-year-old Victoria. Jackie acknowledged Victoria's death on Facebook, writing, Thank you all for your prayers and for your support. As more information comes out, the family will share it. Until that time, there is no comment. The Orlando Sentinel reports Victoria was found unresponsive in the family's Florida home Saturday afternoon and was later pronounced dead at a local hospital. As soon as you lost your daughter, you pulled together your executive team at Westgate Resorts and you told them, run the company, that you were going to make a difference in the the drug epidemic in our country. I said, guys and girls, from now on, you're going to be running the company. I'm going to focus the remaining years of my life on on what I can do to to help with this, that no other father loses his daughter. I had no idea what I was going to do because I had no idea at that moment how bad the drug epidemic was or or that there was even a drug epidemic. Uh, My first thoughts were I was going to open up a rehab with 20 or 30 beds and save 20 or 30 lives at a time. But when I when I, I found out how, how enormous this problem is, I realized that that was that was grabbing low hanging fruit. I I, uh, I needed to use my time to save thousands, not twenty or thirty at a time. And I went to Wash. I went to Washington. Uh, for my first stop was actually I got an appointment with the Surgeon General in Washington through a a congressman that I knew. David went to Washington, but became disillusioned after meetings with the Surgeon General as well as the head of the DEA at the time. I met with him for like an hour, but after about 10 minutes, I realized he didn't have a clue. I mean, he came in the room dressed in his fancy Navy officer's uniform with his fancy naval dress, shades and all. And uh, they really didn't have a clue on on how bad the drug epidemic was or what to do about it. Then I went to the DEA and I met with the director of the DEA. And they took me to the DEA museum and uh, uh, gave me an education on how drugs started, how Coca-Cola once contained cocaine. I mean, very interesting, but... I realized very quickly that this this if somebody was an addict that this museum would not uh, get them off of drugs except for one exhibit. They had one exhibit there of a thirty a picture of a thirty year old or drop dead gorgeous woman uh, that had been arrested for drugs, and that was her mugshot. And every year for the next 10 years, she had been arrested and they had her mugshot from 30, 31, 32 on up. By the time she got to be 40 years old, this gorgeous, beautiful 30-year-old woman looked like an old hag. And I said, I told him, I said, this exhibit you should put in every magazine, every newspaper, every, every place in the country, because any woman with their vanity, that would see these pictures would never, ever use drugs because of of how it could look. But, you know, again, my, my suggestion fell on deaf ears. 
And then they and the DEA admitted they couldn't even keep drugs out of coming into the country. They said they they opened up a new office in Colombia. And I said, what percentage of the drugs come in from Colombia? And they said 10%. And I said, well, what percentage of drugs come in from Mexico? They said 90%. I said, so why didn't you open a new office in Mexico? Why didn't you open it in Colombia? And their answer was, Mexico doesn't cooperate with us, and Colombia does. So, I mean, they had an answer for everything, but the answers didn't make any any sense. So, so I... I was really. I figured I would leave, leave between the 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 uh, Surgeon General and the and and the DEA. I'd, I'd have all the answers I needed. And basically, had none. And then I started going to rehabs like Betty Hazelton, Betty Ford, and Georgia Detox, and Riverbend, and uh, all over the country. I started going to. And I, it was interesting. All of the drug rehabs were run by former drug addicts. And uh, I started listening to drug addicts tell their life stories in these counseling sessions when they had these group sessions. And everyone, without exception, said when they were 14, 15 years old, they started experimenting with marijuana. And most of them were heroin addicts, some some cocaine addicts. But but the common ground was they all started at fourteen, fifteen, and and that that has been kind of the basis of of everything I've been doing is trying to get to the fourteen, fifteen year olds, and uh, uh, and that's what we're going to do with the, with these drug free clubs. But anyway, I traveled the country. I met with experts in the so-called experts in the field, I realized now that I've become an expert that they didn't know that much either. Every time I could talk to somebody that had experience and, and I read everything I could read, I, uh, and, and finally, uh, I got to a point where, where I really started realizing just how bad the drug epidemic was. Next, David shares how a call from Addiction Policy Forum CEO Jessica Nichols led to an appearance before Congress that they'll probably never forget. She said she wrote this bill, the CARA Act, and it's been stuck in Congress in in different committees for three years. Is there anything I can do? And I don't know how she heard about me or what, but is there anything I can do to, to help? So I went to Washington and I spent two months going to every committee that the bill was stuck in. I spoke in front of the committees. Here's a clip from David's 2016 testimony before Congress. If you get a chance, go to our website and take a look at the YouTube video. I think it'll blow you away, and it certainly displays his sense of urgency on this issue in a big way. Mr. Siegel from Florida, David Siegel, father of Victoria, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Um, My remarks are going to be a little different from what you heard here. I have my wife, Jackie, Victoria's mother, uh, with us. And uh, I'm happy that this uh, group has been put together. 
But what I'm unhappy about is there's 14 empty seats up there. How urgent is this to Congress if, there, if there's only three people here instead of 17 that could be here? What other business does Congress have that's more important than hundreds and thousands of lives being lost every year? Her 129 will be 150 today. That was for, uh, 2014 numbers. This is growing 10% a year. We will lose 50,000 beautiful children this year to this epidemic. Our future generation, our future Bill Gates, our future Steve Jobs. Music you're never gonna hear. Stories you're never gonna read. Movies you'll never see. We're losing a whole generation of people and it's nice that we all came together and we're gonna show you our pictures of our children and everybody's gonna uh, say they're sorry for us, but there's no action. There's no call to action and that's what we're looking for. And, and today 150 are gonna die more than the Paris terrorist attack. You won't see it in the newspapers, you won't see it on TV. The president's not gonna make a speech about it. No one's gonna come out and talk about it. But those deaths can be prevented. Mm -hmm. There is a miracle drug out there called naloxone that less than 1% of the population even knows about. And the, and the drug that's out there, the drug companies that make it are gouging the public. It costs 60 cents worth of naloxone to save a life. Mm. 60 cents. The cheapest you can get it in a nasal spray is 37.50, and you have to buy two at a time or $75. The police departments can't afford it. The first responders can't afford it. Every first responder, every policeman, every fireman uh, should have it. Every dormitory should have it. Every every medicine cabinet in the country should have it. Every addict should carry it in their pocket. You know, people with heart heart problems, they carry nitroglycerin. People with diabetes carry insulin. People with people with uh, food allergies carry epipens. But no addict carries naloxone. Most of the deaths that are represented in this room could have been prevented if a naloxone was available. But either because of the price of it or because no one knows about it, I don't see the government doing public service announcements on naloxone. I don't see the drug companies talking about it. I see them talking about every opioid under the sun and now they're even saying if your opioid makes you constipated, here's another opioid that'll solve that. There's no cry. There's no cry. This, this is the worst thing that's happening in this country today. This is, we're under attack. And it's not by ISIS, and it's not by Iran, and it's not by North Korea. It's, it, it's internal. This could become the fall of the Roman Empire yes. if we continue this. Today it's, it's 50,000. Next year it'll be 55,000. How many is enough? And when is somebody gonna get out there and start doing something about it? I keep hearing about money isn't appropriated. Uh, the bills in Congress right now, they've been, they've been in there for months because I've been up here lobbying for them. And they're still in Congress. And the, the Senate passed the bill, but, the, but Congress wants to change, make their changes. People are dying by the minute. And no one is, is crying out, doing anything about it. It's time that it happens. The worst phone call you can ever receive 
is a phone call like I received when my daughter died. Mm -hmm. And since then, it was a wake-up call for me. I had no idea. I didn't even know what marijuana looked like. I had no idea what was going on in the country. But I decided I have a large company. I turned it over to my executives. And I decided that the rest of my life will be dedicated to saving lives. And I've traveled this country. I've met with your, your uh, Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. I've met with the, the director of the DEA. I've visited rehabs all across the country. I've talked to experts. In 11 months since my daughter died, I've earned a PhD in drug education. And what it's taught me is how little it's being done, how few people know anything about this epidemic. It's not an epidemic, it's a pandemic. And if there was a if there was a nuclear rocket coming from North Korea right now, everybody would be mobilized to do something about it. This is worse. This is worse. This is we have a 9/11 incident every three weeks in the drug world. Nobody's crying out about it. I don't hear any outcry. We gotta get things done. Not a week from now or a month from now. We have to get it done now. People have to get, they have to get motivated. They have to get, we have to not only keep people alive, but we gotta stop this epidemic. That's where it starts. We've got, we got 25 million drug addicts in this country today. We have 25 million former addicts that are in recovery. 50 million people with their parents, that's half of our population. Why isn't there some public outcry? We could stop it by doing random drug testing in the schools. We could stop it by, by flooding the market with naloxone. We could stop it by education, but we have to do something. The ball's in your court. Let's do something, not just sit here and listen to us and go back to your offices and get on with the next business. Let's, let's today, Let's do something now. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll pick up on our story next time with what happened after David testified before Congress. Join us later this week for part two of our two-part series with David Siegel as he shares his vision for a nationwide in-school prevention program called the Victory Club. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two. PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.